Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Thanks, Vaughn. Good morning, City Light. My name is Chris, one of the pastors here. Thank you guys for getting up this morning again. As Willie said, it's freezing cold. It's the first time it's ever been freezing cold in February. So this is a surprise for us, but it is still freezing cold. Thank you guys for getting up this morning and worship. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. So if you've got your Bibles open, go ahead and get there. We're going to look at verses 1 through 19 today. And the thing that I want to show you guys is that Jesus meets us where we're at. That's where we're going, that Jesus will meet us where we're at. That's the big idea, okay? And uh, before I jump in, let me just uh, kind of ask you guys one question. Have you ever found yourselves bored at church? Now, I know you would never say bored at church here, but maybe at your last church, you've been a little bit bored, okay? Uh, maybe I know you haven't been bored with my preaching, but maybe the other guys is preaching, okay? Um, have you ever found yourself sitting in a room saying, the best thing that can happen right now is this ends, okay? Um, nobody else. Fine. I'll just confess, I grew up in a religious environment. Mom dragged me to church on most Sunday mornings, and I was like the bored teenager, like, Lord, the best thing you could do right now is shut this whole thing down, okay? And uh, didn't quite get it. And so I actually Googled this week what to do when you find yourself bored at church. And I uh, actually took offense to some of the strategies. Did you know there's entire blogs or websites to this answering this question? And uh, one of the things that came up is play with your hair, which I clearly was offended by because that one's off the table for me, okay? They didn't take into consideration folks don't have hair, all right? Um, Additionally, there was a couple strategies. One of the most creative was, and uh, you know, sometimes I get excited. Some of you guys, sometimes you say amen. A couple charismatic people in here, praise be to God. But um, they said, instead of saying amen, when the preacher gets excited, starts meowing like a cat and see if anyone notices, okay? Uh, others were typical, like just take the church program, fold it, uh, make a paper airplane, sketch, draw something, do your grocery list, act like you're taking notes on your iPhone, but just start texting people. Um, I thought one of the most interesting ones, which was high risk, high reward strategy was, uh, write, I love you, will you marry me and pass it to the person next to you. That could go really well. You could find love or just get hit in the face or tased. I don't know which way that will go. Lots of strategies. The reason I kind of tell that story is that's kind of what Jesus is doing in the passage. He's clearly demonstrated he's God. He's performed miracles. He's preached and claimed to be the promised Messiah. And yet, as the crowd gathers around Jesus, there's a great variation of results. People are kind of responding to him very differently. Some people are leaning forward in faith, and some people are still got their arms crossed, and they're in unbelief and skepticism. And uh, I think this is a reality that still exists even here at City Light Church. Some mornings, you can just tell there's people leaning forward. They're excited. They come in here. They got their hands up. They are ready to worship God. They love Jesus, excited about Jesus. They see even the, even the weather as a good gift from Jesus, okay? You're like, wow, you are really on another level with the Spirit of God right now, all right? Uh, other folks, you're coming in here. Let's just be honest about where you're at today. Uh, some of you guys believe in Jesus, but you're just in a season of suffering and pain. Uh, there's some brokenness in your life in your relationships, and so you're trying to just hold on to Jesus, okay? Others of you guys are coming in here, you're Christians. You've believed in Jesus in the past, but man, you're wrestling with some doubts. You've got some hard questions that you're asking, even about your own faith, and it feels like maybe you're losing grip with the God that you used to be so 
close to. Others of you guys, man, you're only here to do a favor to your spouse. You could honestly not give a rip about most of the stuff I say. And let's just acknowledge that that's sometimes where folks are at in this room. And that's okay. You're welcome here. Wherever you're at on that spectrum of I'm excited to worship Jesus or I'm just trying to stay alive until we get to April and May or I'm in a pain point in my relationship with God or or I'm stuck in some skepticism and unbelief. What I love about the Bible is that Jesus is clearly going to meet people where they're at today. And the interaction we're gonna see is one with this guy named John the Baptizer, okay? Now, John the Baptizer wasn't John the Baptist. He's not a Baptist. He didn't, he wasn't SBC. So just in case you, uh, never mind. we're not gonna get into denominational jokes, but he was a Baptizer. That's how he got his name. And uh, we're gonna see John answer some, uh, Jesus answer some really hard questions from John. So we're gonna jump in. My main outline is, I'm going to ask three questions that we see. What does Jesus basically do when this thing happens? And we're going to show you guys. So the first one is, how does Jesus deal with our doubts? How does Jesus deal with our doubts? He gives us assurances. And uh, I just want to acknowledge the tension in the room. Sometimes I think we as Christians believe that we all have to have this simple childlike faith and we can never wrestle with our faith. We can never ask hard questions in our faith. And we can just always assume that all of us have a lock solid, always never wavering uh, confidence in our faith. But guys, I just want to tell you that has not been my experience. I am a pastor, believe Jesus, preach the Bible for a living. And there are seasons that I ask the most basic of questions of my faith. And I can wrestle with doubt. I've got my own fears around my own faith. And so if you're like me, I just want you to take a deep breath today. Let me show you that this is not a new reality for Christians to wrestle with their own beliefs about Jesus. Let me show you guys this. I think this is encouraging and liberating to us. I hope it will be. Let's jump into verse two. Here's what it says, chapter 11. Now, when John... Uh, heard in prison. John uh, the baptizer is in prison. He's already started his preaching and teaching ministry, but uh, currently he's locked up. We'll talk about more about that later. He sends, uh, uh, he, uh, when he heard in prison, about, he heard about the deeds of Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, this is the question that John's asking. Look at this question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? What John the Baptist, baptizer is asking is, Jesus, are you the promised Messiah? Are you the promised king? Are you the one that all of the Old Testament points to? Are you the one that's to come? That's language saying, we knew there was one coming from heaven to earth to seek and save the lost. Are you that guy? Or should we look for somebody else? Guys, this is Christianity 101. This is not him asking, explain the Holy Trinity. How could you be three in one? That's a complex question. This is Christianity 101. Jesus, who are you? Are you the one that we thought you were or should we keep looking for someone else? And you might not understand the tension because this is not a skeptic asking this question. This is not a non-Christian asking this question. This is not an offended religious leader asking this question. This is a person who's demonstrated a real love and affection for Jesus and now he's back to square one asking, how do I, how do I know that you really are the son of God? He's moved from a strong, confident faith to one where it's wavering. He's perplexed by Jesus. And the reason I say this is so filled with tension is Jesus and John the Baptizer have a lot of history. Their family, first of all, John the Baptizer was one of the very first worshipers of Jesus, the story in the Bible says, that when he was in his mother's womb and around Mary and Jesus, that he literally leapt for joy in the presence of his mom's womb because he was so excited about this. Jesus, the Holy Spirit fell on John the Baptist early in his life, okay? Additionally, it was John the 
baptizer who, when he saw Jesus for the very first time as an adult, he said, there is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins in the world. He knew who Jesus was. He knew the divinity of Jesus and the person of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. He got it. And then when Jesus started his public ministry, it was John the baptizer who baptized Jesus. And the Father from heaven said, he heard it. He heard the voice that this is my son who I'm well pleased. Father from heaven is affirming who Jesus is. And then Jesus, John comes out of baptizing uh, Jesus and he says, man, I must become less and he must become greater. What a humble move. Basically says, listen guys, I've been telling you guys the kingdom of God is coming. I've been telling you the king is on his way, but I've only been announcing it. Here's the one who's gonna usher in the kingdom. Here's the king himself. Don't look at me. I'm just the messenger telling you guys the party's about to start. This is guy He's there to be the hero of the party, okay? So John got it. He had affirmed Jesus, and now he's wrestling with doubt. And so can I just ask the question? First of all, I just want to acknowledge the reality that you might be saying, why is this in our Bibles? Like, if you were to write the Bible, would you not take out this moment? This is John the baptizer. He's a hero in the faith, and yet, man, he's dealing with doubts? I love that this is in the Bible, y'all. I love how honest this is. I love how raw this is. I love that this is, this is so just pure because what it communicates to us is today, you might have a strong handle on your faith and grip on Jesus, but there might be a season of doubt ahead of you. And maybe there's been a time in the past where you felt like you and Jesus were just lock and step, like you were tight, like there was a connection and there was just no room for doubt. You were confident in your faith. You were bold in your faith. You were like, Jesus, you've got permission to do whatever you want. And now you're in a season where you're questioning his goodness and his worth and the validity of his claims. And you drifted into doubt. And what I love about this is it says, Christian, that doesn't make you a weak Christian. That makes you an honest Christian. That God's not mad at you. John the Baptist moved from a place of clear affirmation of Jesus to a place where he's asking the most basic questions, okay? And you have to ask yourself, how did he get here? And I love verse six because he says, um, blessed are uh, those who are not offended by me. What it means by this is how is Jesus offensive? How's Jesus been offensive to John the Baptist? Well, um, I think the question is, is really Jesus came in maybe some ways that John didn't expect him to come. John expected Jesus to come with more fire, more old school preacher, turn or burn kind of stuff. And Jesus is sitting here healing the sick, hanging out with sinners, forgiving people, um, uh, healing the broken. I mean, that's what Jesus is doing. And John's sitting in prison saying, Jesus, you're not doing exactly what I thought you would do. Your ministry and your methods look different. Additionally, there was probably some unmet expectations of Jesus' ministry. There was this extra biblical idea that Jesus would come and he wouldn't usher in the invisible kingdom of God of our hearts and our minds, but that Jesus would come and that he would usher in a physical kingdom. Uh, that they would push back the oppressors of uh, the Roman Empire and set up a physical land with a physical king and a physical kingdom. And that they would once again kind of have all of their glory days of the Old Testament back. But Jesus wasn't going to come to do that. And so John is saying, are you really the one that I thought you were? Or should we look for somebody else? Let me show you guys what Jesus, how Jesus responds to this. Jesus answered him in verse 4. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I love this, because Jesus doesn't just say, guys, John, I know you're dealing with that. Why don't you just take my word for it? Just believe. I've already made it clear to you. Trust my word. He says, no, 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 evaluate the evidence. 
He says, look at what you see. Go back and tell John, who's in prison. The disciples were going to travel back to him and tell him and give him this report. He says, look around. Look at what I'm doing. Look what I'm preaching. Look what authority is being poured out. Look at the evidence and evaluate it. And John would have heard what Jesus was doing, that he was healing the sick. Who else had authority to heal the sick? That he was making dead things alive. That he wasn't just a prosperity preacher, just moving towards the rich and famous, he said, but he was preaching to the poor, caring about the poor, loving the poor, serving the poor. He's saying, and not only would he recognize the deeds of Christ, but he would have looked back into the scriptures. You guys know in the book of Isaiah, 700 years before this moment, there was a prophet said, you will recognize the Messiah when these things happen. (laughs) When the dead are raised to life, when the sick are healed, when the hungry are fed, and when the poor get good news preached to them. You will recognize the son of God has come to usher in his kingdom when you see power and love and mercy and grace be poured out. And John would have evaluated it. And he would have said, surely Jesus Christ is doing exactly what the scripture said he would be doing. He surely is the king that has come to usher in his kingdom. He surely has come to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus I can have confidence in. Amen? So I love what's happening in this text. He's not just saying, um, take my word, but he's playing the classic child game. If it looks like a duck, it sounds like a duck, it waddles like a duck, then it's a Thank you. You guys are with me. It's a duck. I love it. That's what Jesus is doing to help confirm it. Now, let me give a couple uh, moments of uh, um, application for us today. The first thing is this. Um, Would you guys look at Jesus? Because I think there's some of you who still don't give yourself permission to ask yourself hard questions about your faith. Because you think that Jesus is mad. You think that he's frustrated. You think he's disappointed. And so you pretend that you don't have areas where you're still wrestling with your own faith. And what I love about this is look at this Jesus. He's not intimidated by your questions. He's not scared of your questions. He's not fearful of your questions. You can come to this Jesus with your questions. He, instead of rebuking John, what he does is he actually enters in and answers the question. And he moves this man from confusion to clarity about his own faith. And I just, I also want you guys to see, would you see, number two, John. What does John do? Some of you guys are quick to acknowledge you've got frustrations in your faith, fears, doubts. But don't just stay there. Actually move towards Jesus. John actually did something about his doubts and his fears and anxieties. He went to the source. And I love this promise in scripture. Jesus says, if you will seek me, you will find me. How many of you guys know that's true? How many of you, thank you for raising your hand. I have sought the Lord Jesus on some things and he's actually made some stuff clear. He's brought peace where there was anxiety. He's brought joy where there was depression. He's brought life where there's death. I've wrestled with my faith and Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. Do I have to still live by faith? Yes, but he's actually refreshed my own convictions. I just promise you, if you seek him, you will find him. Will you go to the word of God to investigate the claims of God? Would you press into the spirit of God through prayer and say, God, would you help me? Would you go to your city group and and just acknowledge the fact that you're wrestling with these things and ask people to pray for you? If you seek the Lord Jesus Christ, he will reveal himself to you. The final thing I wanna say is I've got really good news for you guys because I just want you to take a deep breath today. As Christians, it is not the strength of your faith that gives us confidence. It's the object of our faith that gives us confidence. And what I mean by that is some of you guys are sitting next to people you don't know And some of you guys here are so confident that you have eternal life. You know that today, if today is the final day you breathe your breath, you will see Jesus Christ face to face. And there's others of you guys who you've believed in Jesus and you're sitting next to somebody who they want to believe that, but they don't know if they can fully believe that. And there's still doubts and there's still hesitations and there's still fears. But it's not the way that you sit in that seat confidently or in fear or in doubt that makes you saved. It's the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. 
And what I love about the Old Testament is it illustrates this maybe in the most beautiful way. So can I just go old school, Old Testament real quick, just remind you of a little passage. One way that I envision this is in, uh, the people of God were in Egypt, and God had sent Moses to free them and give them uh, the promised land. And finally, God was going to break the back of Pharaoh by bringing a death, death plague and death cloud that would take the life of every firstborn in the city. And so this is a frightful night, by the way, okay? And people are losing children and family members. And he instructed the people of God to put the blood of a lamb over the doorpost. Now imagine you're hiding in a house underneath that doorpost, underneath the blood of the lamb. And you're sitting next to your uncle. And your uncle is sitting back. He's eating some stew. He's relaxing by the fire. He has no fear at all. And you're nervously, anxiously pacing all across the house wondering, I'm the firstborn. Am I going to die tonight? Do you know that it doesn't matter if you were anxious that night or you were just chilling by the fire that night? The sufficiency was in the blood of the lamb. That by having faith in the blood of the lamb, it doesn't matter if your strength is confident or fearful. It's the sufficiency of the object of your faith that gets us saved. So I just want you guys to know that. I'm so confident as a Christian in my life, all the doubts that I have are either going to get resolved on this side of eternity or on the other side of eternity. Amen? That's the good news of Christianity. Number two, I want to show you guys not just how John pre- or Jesus presses into John's faith and brings assurance and perspective on that, but now I want to show you how Jesus deals with our present suffering. He gives perspective, okay? Second thing I want to show you guys is how does Jesus deal with our present suffering? He gives perspective. Um, and I love this because you guys remember John the Baptist. What's his current situation? John is in jail. And you might be saying, why is John in jail? If he's a godly dude, a godly preacher, a godly man, why is John in jail? Well, the Bible tells you why he's in jail. And uh, he got in jail not because he broke a crime or did something wrong. Uh, He just started preaching truth to some people who didn't like it, okay? So uh, there's a guy named King Herod. King Herod um, ended up seducing his brother's wife. That's not a good thing to do. And then he leaves his current wife and marries his new mistress. And John the Baptist, like I said, Bro, he had some courage when he got on stage and he was just straight calling people out for their sin. And believe it or not, Herod didn't like that. And so he had the man arrested to silence him so he didn't have to hear his preaching, okay? And uh, so that's why Herod's in jail. But think about Herod's life, or uh, not Herod's in jail, but uh, John the Baptist is in jail. And think about John's life. John's freedoms have been taken from him. His preaching ministry has been stripped of him. He's uncomfortable. He's hungry. He's alone. He's isolated. He's in a really not fun place. And he has to be wondering, did I do something wrong? Am I like in time out because I've sinned? Like, how did I get here? Like, this is messy. I didn't expect to be in this place. And so he's wrestling with those things. And he just needs some perspective on his suffering. Uh, can I just acknowledge that this has been my story? I came to Christ at 18 years old, 2001, uh, and I believed in Jesus. It was the greatest thing that ever happened in my life. It's changed my life. I instantly felt joy that I never had. I instantly had freedoms that I never had. I instantly experienced the presence of God in my life. It was a powerful season, but on the surface, it was the top five worst year of my life, okay? Um, uh, a family member went to jail, and it, it just got messy. Additionally, our house got repossessed, like we had financial problems. Additionally, uh, my basketball career was not panning out like I had hoped it would. I mean, it was just, I had to learn how to date Christian girls, which I'll explain later, is very hard. Um, There are a lot of pain points in my life. And I, I remember going to the Bible saying, Lord, I need perspective because I signed up to follow Jesus and everything just got messy, okay? Everything got messy. 
And I remember opening up James chapter 1, verse 2. He says, consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience trials of various kinds, because these trials will produce in you perseverance. And then he just lists on a long list of characteristics that these, these trials and hard seasons of your life are going to produce something in you. And you guys know, the next day after I read that verse, I was still broke. My family member was still in jail. Uh, I still wasn't that good at basketball. And uh, I still hadn't figured out Christian dating. But you know what I had? I had perspective. I had an understanding that God wasn't going to waste this season of pain in my life, that he was going to produce something in me that he couldn't produce in any other way, that he was going to push deeper the roots of my faith so that when amazing seasons came, I wouldn't flop over like a wheat tree. And so um, I, I got a little perspective on it, and that's what Jesus is going to do for John. He's going to bring some perspective. And so um, let me show you guys this, verse 7 and 9. Uh, here's, here's how he does it. First, he's going to affirm the character of John and the ministry of John. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. Now, why did he change his viewpoint? First, he's talking to the disciples of John. Now he's talking to the crowd because the crowd would have been asking, John's doubting his own faith? Should we trust in John? Was he a true prophet or a false prophet? The dude's in jail. They would have had some questions. And so now Jesus is going to clear this up once and for all. Look what he does. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to, out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in uh, king's houses. What did you go to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, even and more than a prophet. That's who John the baptizer is. And again, like I said, he's going to affirm the character and the ministry of John here because there would have been some questions about it. So um, what happens here is I love this. He looks at the crowd and he doesn't just say, guys, John's the real deal. He's a prophet. He is a godly man. Instead, he says, let me, let me ask you guys some questions. Since you're questioning whether John was a true or a false prophet, let me just put, put the onus on you. He, and he says this, why did you go see him? Like John the baptizer, what, he had a ministry outside Jerusalem, near the desert. It was in a rural, remote area. It was dusty. It was hot. It wasn't a place of convenience or comfort. You had to move the comforts of the city and travel a great distance to come hear John the baptizer preach and teach the word of God. So why did you go? It's like, why did you come here today? It's freezing cold. We're next to an abandoned, like, bowling alley and a Toys R Us that shut down. Like, why would you come here? Were you inspired by the beauty of our parking lot? Like, you had to intentionally wake up and say, I'm going to go to a busted old rundown mall, and I'm just going to drive over there, and it's going to be freezing cold, and I won't even feel my face for the first 15 minutes of the day, right? Like, you made that decision, but why did you come? You came because you wanted to hear the word of God by a person who preached it, who loved it and believed it in a person of a conviction. That's why you came, amen? That's what he's saying. You didn't come because it was comfortable or cute. You came to go see John the baptizer because, man, he was the real deal, a person of conviction. He said, why did you come? Did you come to hear a man that was like moving around like a reed in the wind, which was just a kind of flaky piece of glass, uh, grass that would grow by the Jordan River? It was a really weak thing that swayed wherever the wind took it. And what he's saying, he was comparing a reed in the wind to preachers and pastors and messengers who just tell you whatever you want them to tell you. Whatever's popular, let's just go with it. Let's never align ourselves with the wrong side of popular opinion because then we put ourselves in a vulnerable position. Did you go find a man like that? No, you didn't. He was a man of conviction who built his life on the word of God and the convictions of a man of God. You went out to go see the real deal. He was calling sin, sin. He was calling you to repent. He was calling you to mourn the brokenness of your life and to prepare yourself for King Jesus, to get right with the Lord and not delay 
repenting of your sin. That's why you went. Number three, he said, did you guys go out there to see a man in soft clothing? John the baptizer didn't wear no Snuggies, okay? So write that down, application point. Donate your Snuggie to Goodwill today, all right? Um, but really what he says is not just soft clothing, but, but he dressed like a king, okay? So back in the day, there's people that just dressed modest, average, working clothes, boots, name on the shirt, little dusty. John the baptizer, it says in the Bible, he, he wore camel skin, okay? He, he was not a fashionable dude. He didn't have the skinnies and the boots and the jean jacket and all the swag. That's not why you went to go see him. You guys know this is still a strategy of churches. Like I read this and this is hilarious to me because guess what churches are still doing today? Let's put our church in the right location. Let's just make it whatever's popular. Let's just say that from stage and let's just get a person up on stage that will say, uh, that will look the part and look cute and entertain and they literally have stylists for your pastors now. You guys are laughing but I'm telling you, it's real. Because it's about growing an organization through an attractive means. And I love this. He said, did you go out of your way? Did you go to see somebody dressed in cute clothes? Did you go to hear a nice entertaining message? Or did you go hear a man who loved Jesus Christ, who had conviction of sin, who was secure in who he was? Or did you go to find that person? Because that's what you should be looking for. And, And then the crowd would have said, that's why we went to go see him. And thus answering the question, was John a true or a false prophet? He was a true prophet, and Jesus would acknowledge later that there would become no one greater from the womb of a woman other than John the baptizer. So he affirms him. Number two, he's going to give him some perspective because John's still stuck in jail. And by the way, how kind is it when you are in a hard season when Jesus Christ can say, first of all, I love you, and I see you, and I affirm you? I think that would have been incredibly encouraging for John. Number two, he's going to get some perspective here. Look at verse 12. Look at what he says. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and violent, and the violent have taken it by force. Now, there's a number of different interpretations on this, but I believe what God is saying is that any of those who have marched on for the kingdom of God, that you've tried to advance the mission of God, tell other people about Jesus— um, they throughout history have been mocked and suffered violence, okay? So in your Old Testament, the, God would use the prophets. The prophets were often ignored or treated with indifference, okay? They were rarely propped up and shown proper respect. And then in the New Testament, John the baptizer, where's he at? He's in jail. Eventually, here in a few months, he's gonna die. Jesus is gonna get nailed to a cross. Jesus' disciples, they will die for their faith. People who have been faithful to the causes of Christ on this side of eternity have not oftentimes been celebrated, but mocked and persecuted. Now, we live in a society where you're probably not going to get thrown in jail or beheaded or nailed to a cross. Those things are probably not at play for us, but you will experience this, that your loyalty to Jesus on this side of eternity may be mocked by other people. And if you think it's interesting for our generation, just wait for the next generation, okay? Um, what's, what's interesting here is you guys have already probably somewhat felt this. If you're a young adult and you've oriented your relationship around sexual purity and saying, I'm going to pursue this person without compromising sexually because God has called me to holiness. And in this season of life, that's what that looks like. Man, you're probably going to get some friends that mock you. Why aren't you living together? Man, you better test drive that car before you buy it. Did we not hear that? Compromise now on this side so you can really know what you're getting into. And people will call you a fool for standing on biblical wisdom. Number two, um, if you're following Jesus, you're a college student. In the classroom, there's somebody with a PhD that thinks they're smarter than God. And they're not. They're finite. 
and I have a master's, and I still don't know where a comma goes, so I'm, I'm, I'm 100% sure I can get a PhD and still not know how to spell there and there, okay? So you can get a lot of degrees and be really dumb. I, I 100% found that out. Like, you think, I mean, I literally hang out with a lot of smart people, and I realize they're still very dumb people, okay? Um, and so I'm not going to start going. I could just start talking about people in the class, and everybody, we're not going to go there, Okay. <laughs> Talk about the word of God today. All right. So literally, guys, I got asked to speak at my own graduation for my master's as the keynote speaker, which is embarrassing because I think I graduated with like the bare minimum requirement to get my master's degree. Okay. Um, And so I've just realized, anyways, this is a game. So when I look at this, I say, what he's saying is, guys, um, John the baptizer, you are not in jail because you did something wrong, but you've done something right. Maybe college professors are mocking you. Maybe young adults are mocking you. Maybe your parents aren't that excited. Maybe your kids are pushing away from you because you've got faith in Jesus and they don't even want to see the light that shines from your face. That doesn't mean you've done something wrong. That might be because you've done something right. Now, not all suffering in your life is tied to that, okay? Some of your suffering is tied to the fact that you may have made bad decisions. Others' suffering is tied to the fact that we live in a fallen, broken world. But there is the kind of suffering that is actually there because you're a Christian, And you may be mocked on this side of eternity. And so what Jesus is doing is affirming him. And so um, I look at this and I I take encouragement, but I also think there's a larger application. One, if you're a Christian, you need to prepare yourself that on this side of eternity, people will mock you and call you a fool for standing on the wisdom of God. Number two, I think there's an application here that's a little more encouraging uh, in that I see the larger application of John the baptizer's life. Because really we we have two opportunities here. Do we shrink back from the world because you know that there's going to be haters? Do you dim the light just because the light might get you in trouble? Absolutely not. All the more boldly I want to shine for Christ. Because Herod threw uh, John the baptizer in jail. But you know what? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people heard the message of John the baptizer, repented of their sins, and started following Jesus. And I just look at my life, and I said, the haters are worth it. (laughs) Because I might not be all that popular on Twitter. Somebody might not like something I say, and that's 100% okay. I am going to bank my life on the word of God, and I want to experience stories. And if the stories of real people meeting Jesus, marriages being transformed, lives being changed from the inside out, if that boldness for Christ makes me a target in this world, I'm 100% okay with that. And so I just want you guys to count the cost and tell you that if you will stand with Christ, you will get some haters, but you will also go to heaven with some incredible stories to tell of how Jesus changed some lives how Jesus used you, a weak person, in ways that you would have never expected, how your uncompromising character of Christ and a desire to stay pure in this side was actually a beautiful gift to others that would inspire their faith in Jesus, that you weren't just a person who claimed to sing on Sundays, but you worshiped with all of your life throughout the week. That's a compelling Christianity that's a witness to the world. Amen? So don't dim the light, Christians. Just allow Jesus Christ to write amazing stories through you. Last thing I want to show you guys is how does Jesus deal with hard hearts? At this point, we've got a a warning. He gives a warning and invitation. This changes, again, he turns his attention from speaking to the disciples of John to speaking the crowd about John. And now he's going to zoom out one extra layer. And one extra ring out are these religious leaders who have been hearing the claims of Christ, witnessing uh, the miracles of Christ, and yet they're still doubting, is Christ real. Additionally, there's some people that are just exhausted in that crowd because they're trying to play religious games and keep all the rules up. And so basically Jesus is going to compare these religious leaders who are hard to please to a people who in your life are impossible to please. Can I just ask you, do you have any relationships that sometimes they just, they're people in your life that feel impossible to please? 
Yes, you do. You might be sitting next to one if you're married to him, but you're not going to raise your hand. I get it, okay? Okay, now, like I told you, I was new to the Christian dating game when I was 18 years old, and I didn't know the rules. And so one of the things that happened when I entered into this thing is, is I started trying to figure it out. And I never forget one of my first dates. Somebody, I tried to be intentional and tried to ask questions, tried to draw out their heart. Tell me your story. How'd you meet Jesus? What kind of childhood did you have? What's your family like? What kind of church did you go to? So I'm asking questions. I thought that's what you're supposed to do. And then she looked at me and said, this is starting to feel like an interview, not a first date. And so I get quiet. I'm like, okay, you want to play the game. All right, I'm going to be quiet. So I get quiet. And at the end of the day, she said, I just didn't feel like you were intentional. You didn't draw up my emotions. I'm like, I literally don't know what to do here. Okay? Have you ever been on a date? Men, have you ever been on a date? Ladies, this is, you need to blog about this because we're still confused on what to do. Have you ever been on a date? And uh, I, I was taught you're supposed to pay and be gracious. Jesus was gracious and generous to me. I'll be gracious and generous to you. That's fine. I'll, I'll, pay, for the first, I'll pay for the date. So if I pick up the check and she looks at me and says, um... I'm an independent woman. I have a job in my own money. I could have covered it. I'm like, I love that. Okay, I'll go date number two. I don't pick up the check. And she says, why are you being cheap and not cherishing me? Have you ever done this with kissing? Oh yeah, we're gonna go there. Hide your curious ears. Um, the first time I go on another date, I said, I don't hug the girl because I'm like, you know what? I actually tried to kiss Christians before we were dating, and that wasn't a good thing. I got rebuked by some older brothers in the faith, which was a totally appropriate thing. So then I'm like, okay, I'm going to get beat up by my Christian brothers, and it's going to get messy. I'm not going to, so I'm not going to kiss or hug a Christian girl until basically I'm like uh, five years into marriage, okay? So <laughs> and then we'll figure it out. Uh, but so I make this decision. So then all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I'm not going to. So she calls me after the date and says, are you not attracted to me? I'm like, yes, I'm attracted. Well, why didn't you try to hug me? Well, because I, I thought the Christian rule was like, here's the line and the other line and the line. And I didn't want to get put on church discipline. So I did this. And so the next, next time we go on a date, I try to give her a hug and a kiss. She says, you're going too fast. So I'm just so confused. <laughs> Have you been there? Have you ever had this on the way to church with your spouse? Before I was a, preacher, a, pa- a pastor and was a preacher, we, uh, I did college ministry so I could actually go to church with my wife. And I'll never forget the fights we would get in on the way to church. Classic, running late for no reason. We didn't even have kids. We were just lazy, okay? I mean, it's like if you're late and you're young without kids, you just don't like mornings. That's on you, okay? But, but I would go and she would literally say, Chris, um, you're driving too fast. And you know, they start to like do that like hold like you're on an airplane and they're bracing and you're like okay I get your nonverbals you're basically saying slow down or I'm going to jump out of this car okay I got it so so then she says I'm not going fast enough well then I just start to slow down for every yellow light I'm like I'll play the game every even hint of yellow I will stop completely like 30 yards behind the stop sign okay or the yellow light and then she's like, Chris, we're never going to get there. I'm like, I'm playing the game at this point. I don't care. You're never happy. We're going to be upset. If I go five miles over, I'm going too slow. But if I go two miles, 10 miles over, I'm going too fast. I repent. I don't know. Okay, I'm taking Ubers to church from now on. I don't even know. All right. So I don't know if you've ever had that. That's what Jesus is saying this crowd is like. Um, so he's basically saying, guys, I've preached. I've taught. I've done the miracles. I've healed the sick. And yet you guys still don't get it. And you're still frustrated. Look at verse 17. He says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang the dirge and you did not mourn. So he's saying, regardless if there was joy or there was mourning, if there was seriousness or laughter, you didn't like the message. The gospel music is on, but you didn't want to dance. He's comparing them to children who you guys know there's always that kid. Regardless of what activity they do, they pout and they protest. 
because they're not happy about the game. So you try to play their game, and they're still upset that you're not playing the game they really wanted to play. Look at this in verse 18 and 19. He says, For John came neither eating nor drinking. They said, He has a demon in him. <laughs> the Son of Man came eating and drinking. They say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Guess what? John the baptizer, he didn't drink. He slept on the outside of the city. He never used alcohol. He didn't go to the parties. He was an old school dude who called you to repent of your sin, and he didn't play games, okay? And they called him a demon because he was holy, because he recognized the calling on his life, because he was self-controlled. And then Jesus, he comes in, he goes to the parties, and he drinks a glass of wine, and he never, um, he never abused alcohol, but for all of us legalistic Larry's in there, First miracle was to turn water into wine. Okay, he enjoyed a glass of wine. It's going to be okay. Take a deep breath. I know some of you guys are leaving our church now. That's okay. So, but guess what? He moved towards broken people because he said it, it was the, is it, who needs a doctor? The healthy or the sick? The sick. And so he's going to pursue them. And guess what? He's saying, the onus isn't on John. The John's the real deal. I'm the real deal. And yet, guess what you said about John? You said he's a demon. You said he's crazy. You tried to... Um, silence out his message of repent for the kingdom of God is here because you didn't like the man. And then all of a sudden you said about me, what did I do? You don't like me either. You're gonna reject me too. Why? Because you're gonna say, I hang out with people who like their Bud Light too much. I got some folks in my life that are questionable. Some people with scandalous reputations. So it doesn't matter. John was too far removed from this world. Jesus seemed to be engaged too much in this world. They don't like either of them. John the Baptist was too strict. Jesus was too loose. It doesn't matter. They're hardening their hearts. Do you see this game? And we still know people like this. You try to love them, try to tell them about Christ. They're always going to find a reason to reject Jesus. And so here's what we, he says to him. Verse 20 through 24, we're not going to go on to it, but he basically says, guys, there's judgment coming. And this is the most honest thing Jesus can do. Jesus is not on trial here. Jesus is God. Jesus has healed the sick, he's cared for the poor, he's fed the hungry, he's raised the dead to life, he's moved towards the unlovable. Jesus is who he says he is. He is the third member of the Trinity, the son of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. He's now seated at the right head of the Father. He has all authority and dominion on heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is king. And he's saying, I'm not on trial. And today on this side of eternity, you get to judge Jesus. But what he warns his followers is there will be a day on the other side of eternity that you will be judged by Jesus. And on that day, you will either experience the wrath of God or the grace of God. And so his most loving tone and posture is to warn people and say, please do not stay in your unbelief. Please do not justify your rebellion to the Lord. Would you respond rightly? And then he gives this beautiful invitation in verse 28. Let me read it to you and then we'll close. He says, come to me all who are labored, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, earn, and, and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and, will, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love this. What should you do? Christians, you come to Jesus because you're worn out. Non-Christians, you come to Jesus because you need fresh faith in him. Come to Jesus where you can have your sins forgiven. Come to Jesus where your soul will find life. Come to Jesus where you will, uh, your righteousness is by faith and not by works. Come to Jesus. That's what you're called to do. If you're not yet a Christian, would you come to Jesus? And if you are a Christian, here's what I've learned about Christianity. I've came to Jesus at 18 years old and I haven't stopped coming to Jesus since. Amen? Let me close with this, church. Um, I came to Christ because I knew I needed a Savior bigger than myself. 
I was guilty of sin. And guess what? I was really thirsty. And so I drank of that water. I knew I was guilty and I needed a savior bigger than me. And Jesus forgave my sins, gave me a righteousness that is perfect. And he adopted me into his family. He, um, he made me new from the inside out. He poured his Holy Spirit in me. He gave me a new affection for God, a new burden for his word, a new love for the lost people. That's what Jesus did in my life. I came to him at 18 years old and he's changed my life. And you guys know what? On that first day I believed in Jesus, I knew I needed him bad. But on this day, almost 20 years later, I still know I need him really bad. And I have never stopped coming to Jesus. I come to Jesus after I yell at my kids. <laughs> And I tell him I'm sorry. I come to Jesus when I don't love and pursue my wife like I know I should. And I say, God, would you help me to pursue my bride like you pursue yours? And I come to Jesus every time I look out and see what God is doing. And I say, thank you for your grace on this church and on me. You're making dead things alive. I never stop coming to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Because I've realized the Christian life is too heavy for me to do apart from Jesus. Do not settle Christians for coming to Christ 20 years ago and stop coming to Christ today. You are living a joyless, powerless, dead version of Christianity that is sapped of any real intimacy and relationship with God. And his invitation on your life today is would you come to him as you are. Skeptical, doubting, suffering, broken, hurting, wherever you're at, would you come to Christ? And would you do business to God? Let's pray right now and we'll take communion. Jesus, I'm thankful that I know I can come to you today with no fear in my spirit, because the combination of my sin has already been taken on by the Son. I do not approach you today. The Christians in this room do not approach you today as outsiders, but as your children, sons and daughters who you love. And the invitation for us is to come. To come to you with our doubts. Come to you in seasons of suffering. Come to you with our confusion. Come to you with our hurt. To come to you with our anxiety. To come to you with our unmet dreams. To come to you with our past. To come to you with our present. I pray right now that we as a church would be a people who come. And that we never stop coming to the throne room of grace. God, what a beautiful invitation you've given us. That you, a holy God, would allow us broken, fallen sinners to come and do business with you. To experience your joy, your peace, your life, your grace, and your forgiveness. And your mercies that are new every day. I pray that we would be a church that comes. Lastly, for those who are not yet Christians, I just want to pray right now with you. If you want to come for the very first time and find life and rest in Jesus who loves you and has pursued you, would you just pray this? Jesus, I come today. I come as I am. I come as a guilty sinner, but I come in faith in the Son of God that I would be made new and find life and rest in you. I come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.